Yeah, and we just want to ask as Rose comes and preaches, Lord, that you would just anoint those words and just bring the truth that this place has been hungering for, that you have been longing to bring into our hearts. And I just pray that we would receive that with grateful and filled hearts and joy and, and go out in wanting to be doers of your word. Amen. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you, worship team. So good to be able to worship the Lord together and to start the evening that way. Um, if I haven't met you, I would love to get to meet you if you're here for the first time. We can do that afterwards. Uh, but just uh, by way of introduction, my name is Roland, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Connect. Um, and if you are new with us, sorry, I don't have a clip for this piece of cable here. And so if the microphone rips off of my neck, you'll know why. Um, if you are new with us, you're here with us at a really exciting time because we are launching into a 16-week, well, including tonight, 17-week series in the book of Romans. Right, and we've called it uh, Romans. Uh, <laughs> the, the foundation of your faith. We are very original. Um, we just thought if that's what it's called, that's what it's called. Why, why get technical about it? Um, but really, I'm super excited about this. And although it might seem like we're going to be spending quite a bit of time in the book of Romans, I just want to say I think we're just going to be scratching the surface of the surface as we tuck into the next couple of weeks. And I say just scratching the surface because if you know much about um, famous preachers and what they've done, many of them have spent years, plural, years going through the book of Romans. Guys like John Piper, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Charles Spurgeon. I think Martin Lloyd-Jones has the record. He spent 13 years preaching through Romans and only got to chapter 14 before he died. So I thought that would be a bad idea to do that. But just to put it in perspective, we're preaching essentially this message, which is an opening message, an introduction to the book of Romans. <coughs> and then we're going to be doing another 16. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 29 messages in chapter 1 alone. Right? So this is a really deep and rich theological book. And I think although we're not going to be spending as much time or going as long through the book of Romans as some of those guys, I think it is a book that's going to nourish us, that's going to encourage us and edify us and really deeply challenge us if we allow God to speak to us through His Word and through the Spirit as we journey together. One of the reasons why I'm also really excited is because I agree with um, the German theologian, his name is Frederick Dorrit, and he said this, from every moment, in every moment uh, in revival in the history of the Christian church, he said this about Romans, it has been connected to the teachings set forth in this book. Speaking about Romans specifically, he said, and it's probably that every great spiritual revival within the history of the church will always be linked, both in cause and effect, to a deeper knowledge of this book. And when you think about that, it might sound like he's, he's, he's preferring the book of Romans over any other book in God's Word. And, and we accept and we, and we believe in the full counsel of God's Word here at Connect. But the reason why he's able to say this with such confidence and why I agree with him is because the heart of Romans, the central theme of Romans is the gospel of Jesus Christ. To unpack the book of Romans is to unpack the gospel and to get a deep, rich theological understanding of what the gospel of God, as he refers to it, is as we go through it. If you, if you go through Romans and you unpack it, you know that it is the most comprehensive unpacking of the gospel anywhere in Scripture. 
So it is the go-to place. If, if you wanted to disciple somebody, if you wanted to unpack the gospel, if you wanted a book that's going to take you deep into what the gospel is, what we believe, and how to live in light of the gospel, you go to the book of Romans. Because of this, Romans has been a book that's impacted the lives of many, many giants of the faith. And I, I pray that as we, as we go through it, the Holy Spirit would move in our hearts and will impact us as well. Now, before we get stuck into it, I just, by way of introduction, want to give some background information to the book of Romans. It's not meant to be a lecture-style message. We're going to get into some meaty stuff just now. But I just thought, in case you don't know, you may or may not know this, but just some stuff about the book of Romans that I thought you would like to know. Firstly, it's one of those rare New Testament books where very, very few scholars disagree with regards to who wrote it. So there's almost no debate um, with regards to who wrote Romans, and almost all agree that it was Paul who wrote the book of Romans to the church in Rome. But secondly, Paul wrote this letter in Corinth, and he wrote it in Corinth around about 56 to 58 AD, which means about 23 to 26 years after the death of Jesus. And he wrote it just before he left to go on a missionary journey uh, to Jerusalem with a gift for the poor that he had collected from the Macedonian church. And John shared about that a couple of weeks ago in our previous series where the church was giving so generously, Paul collected money from them and he was on his way there. So his plan um, was to stop over in Rome and, um, and to meet with the Roman church after his visit to Jerusalem on his way to Spain. And so he writes this letter as, as a way of introducing himself to the Roman church. Then finally, the book of Romans as a, as a book has quite a few unique um, sections to it. And, and, and the whole flow of Romans can be broken down into some really complex different sections. But for those of you who like it short, sweet, and simple, like me, right, there are two essential, thing, or two essential sections of the book of Romans. One, what we believe. And that's from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 11, verse 36 to be specific. And then after that how we should live in light of what we believe. That's how you can break Romans up. It's a book where, where Paul, right from the beginning, begins to trace the developing theme of the gospel. He takes us from the idea of condemnation to glorification. He speaks about the depths of human guilt and then our forgiveness in Jesus. He speaks about the depths of our brokenness and the heights of God's grace. That's the that's a theme that he tracks, and he speaks essentially also about where the gospel begins and how it moves forward into the future, and so it is a really rich book on the gospel of God, and I am excited to start this together. So we're going to read, we're just going to be unpacking, if time allows, verses 1 to 5, right? But essentially, you should know that chapter 1, verse 1 to 17 is Paul's introduction of himself and the theme of Romans to the church in Rome. But we only have time, hopefully, for five verses tonight. So let's read together and we'll get stuck straight into it. So Romans chapter 1, 1 to 5. Paul says this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Through him, we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. So right from the beginning, Paul starts off and he makes it very clear what this book is all about or what this letter to the Romans is all about. If you read the first five verses, you would know what's coming in the next coming chapters and the following chapters. It's a letter about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's going to expound and unpack. And in reality, all of Romans, the whole book of Romans can be condensed into these few opening verses. For the rest of the book, Paul's going to unpack what he writes uh, in verses 1 to 17, but also even more condensed into verse 1 and 5. Now, it's a bit of a weird introduction for Paul. Although all of his letters have got introductions, this one is a bit, it's a bit different because he, he elaborates a little bit more with regards to who he is, what his intentions are, and he specifically pays attention to what he believes about Jesus Christ and what the content of the gospel is that he preaches. And there's a reason for this. It's because the Roman church didn't know Paul. You know, often we have this idea that Paul's just everywhere. Everyone knew him. He planted every church that ever existed in the early days, and he wrote everything that could have ever been written. And it's a bit of a mis misnomer, right, and a misconception, because I think we talk a lot about him because he wrote three quarters of the New Testament, but the Roman church didn't know him at all. And so by way of introduction, he writes this letter. The church didn't come to faith through Paul, so they weren't aware of his theology and who he was. They, they hadn't heard him preach before. He had never visited there before, and in fact, in most cases, they probably would have heard something about him that probably would have concerned them, right? Paul was very aware of the fact that everywhere he went, news about him was spread, and he was often faced with opposition. So in Jerusalem, he faced opposition from sincere converted Jews to Christianity. They were like, whoa, this guy used to be Saul of Tarsus. He stoned Stephen. This guy's bad news, right? We don't want him here. And then he comes and he preaches the gospel. They realize it is a brother who's received the Lord Jesus Christ. is filled with the Holy Spirit. God's giving him you know, a new mandate, and he's passionate and zealous. As much as he was for killing Christians, now he's zealous for converting people from Judaism to Christianity and for having the Gentiles converted to Christianity. He also experienced some opposition from insincere Jews, like Judaizers, who, would, who sort of like mixed the Jewish traditions with uh, the Christian gospel and sort of came up with this like twisted version where they took their pet theologies and, and, and pet ideas and ideologies and mixed them with Christianity and were trying to convert people, convince them that the gospel of Jesus Christ was different to the one that had been preached. He, he had faced opposition from, from Gentile believers in Colossians and in Ephesus. And, and in fact, Paul was often regarded as somebody who, uh, who was dangerous and an innovator and someone who recklessly added to the teachings of Jesus. And so the Roman church might have heard something about him, but it probably wasn't something that they were keen on hearing. So Paul sets out right from the beginning of Romans not only to introduce himself, but also to specifically unpack for them what he believed about the person and work of Jesus Christ and to, have him to and to have them understand before they received him what he believed to be the gospel of God. Paul knew and the Roman church knew, and I think we should know as well, that you cannot be wrong about the gospel. To be wrong about the gospel is to not be right with God. Conversely, to be right with the gospel and to know the gospel is to be right and to know about anything and everything that ever matters. Getting the gospel right 
is important. And I think nowadays, more so than back then, but back in the early church days as well, there were so many different gospels that existed, and people had taken this idea of the gospel and twisted it into stuff that it was never meant to be. And as a result, people bought into a fake, false gospel. And Paul and the early church and God's people today should still be, and I believe are very zealous about protecting what the gospel really is. And so Paul essentially answers this question that we're going to ask, what is the gospel? That's what the whole book of Romans is. It's unpacking of what the gospel is. I think most of us know, if you had to ask somebody what the gospel means, especially if you've been in a Christian circle for a while, we'll have this answer given. The gospel means good news. It's good news. And that really is what the word gospel means. We get it from the original word, the Greek word, euangelion, which just means good tidings or good story or good news or good message. But what's really important is the content of the gospel. See, anything can be a gospel. When my, ma- when, when my wife came to me and, um, and we realized that after a year of trying to fall pregnant, we were pregnant, when she told me we're pregnant, that was gospel. That was good news. Right? When, when our first baby boy, or our only baby boy, when our first child, please, Lord, not another one. Um, <laughs> let me just have a drink of water here quickly and swallow that down. When he started sleeping through, and we shared that with the grandparents, it was like, that is gospel news. That is just like good news. And so there's many different gospels, but I think what Paul was getting at, what we have to understand is, what is the content of the gospel of God? What is the content of the gospel that we believe as Christians? What is the content of the gospel that saves? To be wrong about that content is to be wrong about something that has eternal significance. It's not just any gospel, it's the gospel of God. And so tonight, to help us to answer that, we're going to unpack that under four headings, which Paul sort of uh, unpacks or gives to us in the opening verses. One, the source of the gospel. We look at what the source of the gospel is. Two, the beginning of the gospel. Three, the subject of the gospel. And four, the demand of the gospel. So let's start right at the beginning, the source. Paul starts verse one, he says, A servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Now, when Paul says at the end of verse 1, for the gospel of God, not only is he saying that this gospel is about God, but what he is saying is that this is God's gospel. It's where he starts. In other words, the gospel that saves is not some man-made story conjured up by some clever theologians in some back room somewhere to convince people to follow them, although that did happen. This is not something that has come from man. This gospel that we preach, the gospel that saves, originated from God. It has its source in the throne room of heaven. This is God's gospel. So Paul starts off with, only the sheer infinite genius of God could have come up with this. No man, no denomination, no church, no seminary, no board of elders could have written and scripted what God did through the pages of history and, wo- and weaved together and had woven together the story of the gospel. Only God could have come up with that. And Paul starts with that with the Romans because he wants him to understand that he's not some twister of the gospel. He's not claiming to be the source of the gospel or to have some new news. He's saying, this is God's gospel that I preach. And when I come to you, I'm, packing, I'm going to unpack God's gospel. I, I'm fully aware that this gospel had its origin in God. In other words, when you receive the gospel, you receive God himself. And to reject the gospel is to reject God himself. That's what Paul starts off 
by saying, and that's why we have such a zero-tolerance policy when it comes to tampering with the gospel. We don't touch the contents of the gospel as given to us in the scriptures because that's God's gospel given to us, the way he desired it to be given. And it is an eternal, absolute truth. This is not a subjective thing. Secondly, Paul moves into the beginning of the gospel. He establishes this gospel is God's gospel. But then he goes, I want you to understand that this, be- this, this began somewhere. It has its source in God from the throne room of heaven, but it began somewhere. It's not something new. It's old. Not old news as in, oh, that's old news. That's like terrible. But this is not a new teaching. He says this in verse 2, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Why does Paul include that in his introduction? Because he wanted to assert, like I said, that this was not some new trendy message. Rather, Paul teaches that the gospel comes from and is rooted in the rich, rich passages of the Old Testament and in the story of his people Israel. That's where the gospel finds its context. And I think sometimes we miss that. There are teachers who will teach you to unhitch the Old Testament from your faith. The Old Testament is very part of, it's very much part of what Paul and the early church believed to be the gospel, what they believed to be the gospel. In other words, the gospel is old, and believe it or not, the gospel was given and promised right at the beginning of human history. Throughout all the centuries of the Old Testament, the gospel was given and promised. And I think for many Christians, this is somewhat of a challenge, and this is why it's a challenge for us, because we've been taught to pin and to hook our understanding of the gospel primarily to the New Testament. And the Old Testament somehow seems to have faded in to the background. We even forget it exists sometimes. And when we think about gospel, we certainly don't necessarily think about Old Testament and Old Testament history and the people of Israel and the story of God's redeeming work through a specific people. The Old Testament was very much part of what Paul and the early church considered to be the gospel. If you just take a brief look through the Old Testament and you look at it through these eyes, where's the gospel? You will find the gospel prophesied about and promised right from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through to the book of Malachi. It was announced to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It was believed by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was believed by King David, and the list goes on and on and on. They didn't have all the details that we have now. They didn't have all the details. They didn't have the canon of Scripture that we have now. They didn't have the New Testament. But this one thing they did have and this one thing they did believe, God had promised a Messiah that would come and redeem His people. That's what they had. That's the gospel message at its core. In other words, the gospel we preach is not some new way to heaven that only appeared in the New Testament. Here's what it says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 to 15. And this is right after Adam and Eve have sinned in the Garden of Eden. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Here's a prophetic word about the coming Messiah. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. There's the beginning of the gospel for us. 
as it is written down. But it was always in the heart of God. It starts right in the beginning. What about Isaiah 53? This is 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Here's what it says. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to our own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. That is a prophetic word about the coming Messiah and what he's going to do. It's a promise of God to redeem his people through the anointed one. We know him as King Jesus they perhaps didn't then, but what they did know was that God had promised the Messiah. This gospel message was not new. And so for Paul to prove and to show that he was preaching the authentic gospel meant to have them understand that he knew it was rooted in the Old Testament scriptures. That it was part of God outworking the, the, the story of Israel and bringing to fulfillment and completion the story of Israel in Jesus Christ. But why is this so significant? Why is it so significant for us? Well, I think a couple of things, and I really feel like this is on the heart of God for us to hear tonight, that helps us to identify who is and who isn't preaching the true gospel. When someone says to you that they're saved and they're saved because they're bought into the gospel, you, you can tell straight away whether they've bought into the correct gospel if you ask them about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Was he promised in the Old Testament and does he fulfill Old Testament prophecy? If the answer is yes, you're in a good place. But if your Jesus did not fulfill Old Testament prophecy, if he wasn't promised right in the beginning of the book of Genesis, you've got to ask yourself this question, do I have the right gospel and do I believe in the right Jesus? The second thing is it dispels this myth that this gospel is some new story that's been um, conjured up in the New Testament. And it's sort of like this way of salvation that's put up against the way of salvation in the Old Testament. It destroys the, the idea that somehow the God of the Old Testament is different to the God of the New Testament. You have no idea how many people are under the impression that somehow God expected his people to be saved in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, by doing works. I've spoken to so many people about how people were saved in the Old Testament, and I say, well, by works. It was a covenant of works. It was never that. And the idea is that God was somehow more malicious and more angry and that somehow God was, God was more unreasonable and less gracious in the Old Testament and required people to work for their salvation. And that somehow in the New Testament, because of Jesus, the Father's brought into this idea of grace all of a sudden understanding that this is a gospel that was given right at the beginning of time for Paul was so important because it paints a picture of who God is and always was and always will be as a God of love and grace, a God of righteousness and justice, a God who's angry with sin and will pour out his wrath one day on sin but has made a way for people to be redeemed through Jesus. Right from the beginning of time, God promised a savior. Anytime, anybody, anywhere throughout history got saved, it was always, always by faith through grace in the Messiah. This is how it worked. 
In the Old Testament, faith worked by looking forward to the promise of a coming Messiah. That's how it worked. Romans 4, chapter 1 to 3, which we'll get into later in the series, but I just thought I'd pop it in there now quickly. Paul says this, What then shall we say that Abraham, our, our, Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter, speaking about salvation? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. Why? Because God says, even our best deeds are like filthy rags before him. Nothing you can do can earn salvation for you. He says, what does the scripture say though? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham's faith is what gained him salvation. Faith in a Messiah that was promised by God and he would come. <clears throat> Hebrews 11, speaking about great men and women of the faith and their faithfulness to God and their faith in God, it says this, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. So how were people saved in the Old Testament? By grace, through faith, looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, knowing that God was going to fulfill his promise. How are we saved? By looking back to the cross, going, God, you fulfilled your promise. The Messiah has come. It's like a bank account. I can imagine someone saying, you know, go and buy yourself whatever it is that you want. Let's just use, let's use a house as an example. <coughs> you don't have any money and somebody says, go and buy a house. And let's imagine you were allowed to buy a house through promising that you would pay. And not actually having money available. And this person says, go and buy a house and I promise you, sign everything you need to sign and in a couple of months' time, the money will be there. If you trust this person and you have enough faith, you'll do that. And if they make good on their word, in a couple of months' time, there'll be money in the account for you to be able to pay the house. That's what it was like for the people of the Old Testament. God was saying, trust me, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to forgive you. Have faith in the fact that I'm sending a Messiah. And when you put your faith in God to do that, he accredited to you as righteousness. We look back and go, wow, the money has come. The bank account is full. God did deposit, and now I can look back going, there's enough, and I have faith that I'm going to be redeemed. That's how it works. So when Paul's highlighting in verse 2 that God's promise on the Savior is an Old Testament promise, he's excited about the fact that Jesus came. He was born. He lived the life that fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. He was crucified, resurrected, ascended back to heaven, and is coming back again. Although it took so many centuries to fulfill, God always keeps his promises. And just quickly, that's one of the other reasons why it's so important that we don't unhook the Old Testament from the gospel. It's because it helps us to refocus and understand what is really at the core of the gospel. The gospel moves from the declaration that I can be saved to the Messiah has come. The King has come. <clears throat> Nowadays, I think we've created this salvation culture where Jesus is just there for me. And it's all about me being saved and about my comfort and my peace. And I think one of the reasons is because we've disconnected the story 
of God's people and the prophetic buildup throughout the Old Testament, we've disconnected that. We've disconnected the fact that Jesus is Messiah from the work of Jesus Christ that he did on the cross. And so the work on the cross is great, but it's abstract because it has no context most of the time for us. And we've created a salvation culture where it's just about being saved and, and Jesus is not being honored as Messiah, Son, and Lord. What was really good news for Paul in the early church was that God had made good on his promise to send a Messiah. And I'm not saying it's not good news that we get saved. I just don't think that that's what Paul and the early church understood to be the good news. The good news was the Messiah has come, the King has come, and inherent in that is this idea that my salvation is secure and is possible. Because when the King comes, the kingdom comes. For Paul and the early church to summarize, for them to go around gospeling and preaching the gospel was to declare the King has come, the King has come. You know the one that God has been promising? He's come. You know the faith that every single patriarch of the faith has had and every single woman of God who has had hope in God before the coming of Jesus? Their faith is not null and void. It's been assured that the king has come. And it might sound very silly and slightly nuanced to you and not such a big deal, but what that does is it shifts the core of the gospel from being about me and my salvation to Jesus and his glory. That's what it does. something you may not have thought about one of the reasons why i believe this so much is because the concept of forgiveness and grace was not a new concept for paul and the jews they knew what grace was they knew what forgiveness was every single year they had the temple um they had the forgiveness of sins at the temple they had the, the day of atonement where they would come to the temple and their sins would be forgiven and they would know that there's no ways that a lamb or a dove or some other animal in the spilling of their blood could forgive me for what I've done before the Lord. But they would see this example of God and His grace being outworked every year. They knew it was grace. They knew their sins were dealt with. They weren't worried about whether God was going to redeem them or not. So the idea of being saved wasn't the gospel. The gospel, the good news was Jesus has come. The King has come. And God has made good in His promise. Paul in the early church to gospel was to start at the beginning of the Old Testament and to share with people the good news of Jesus, ending with his death, resurrection, and exaltation, and imminent return, and inherent in that story is our salvation, which glorifies God. Paul then moves on to the subject of the gospel goes the gospel is god's gospel the gospel is rooted in the old testament it's a fulfillment of god's promise it's good news that god made good on his promise and i want you to know what the gospel is all about he says this in verse three speaking about what the gospel is the gospel of god regarding his son he says who as to his earthly life was a descendant of david and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of god in power by the resurrection from the dead jesus christ our lord paul makes very clear from the beginning this gospel is about jesus it has jesus in the center it was always about jesus and will always be about him it has been and always will be about him 
Paul unpacks here very quickly and very succinctly the fact that Jesus was God, was fully human, came through the line of David as prophesied in the Old Testament, fulfilled the prophecy, was crucified, resurrected, and coming back again. He speaks about Jesus Christ, our Lord. At the center of the gospel was Jesus. At the center of the gospel is Jesus. Charles Spurgeon once said, the more gospel we preach, the more Jesus we must preach. Paul put it more succinctly in Colossians 1.28. He says, he is the one we proclaim. In other words, to gospel is to preach and to proclaim the story of Jesus from beginning to end. If you think about this for a second, and I know it's been embarrassing to admit this, but for me it took a long time to see this. Do you know why the gospels are called the gospel? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I was listening to somebody and he was like, do you think perhaps it's because they are the gospel? I was like, hmm. He's like, I was listening to this guy, and if you want to know who he is, come speak to me afterwards. He just said, they used to be called the gospel of Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to Luke, the gospel according to John. Somewhere about 256 AD, it became the gospels, plural. He said the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is one gospel according to the perspectives of four different people, and it's called the gospel because it unpacks the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the return of Jesus. They're called the gospel because that is the gospel, but somewhere along the line what we've done is we've made the gospel about a Good Friday message, and I think the Good Friday message is a good news. The fact that Jesus died and, and, and rose again and the fact that we can be saved because of that is good news. But hear what I'm saying. I don't think that is the gospel total. It's part of the gospel. It's the plan of salvation within the gospel story. The gospel story at the center doesn't have you can be saved. It has Jesus is king. That's what it has. Here's what Jesus says. Just a little bit more evidence for you. I love this. Jesus, in the book of Mark, chapter 14, verse 3 to 9, he's sitting down. A woman with a jar of alabaster oil comes and breaks it over Jesus and pours it over him. Some people are very upset about this. They say it's very expensive. Why did she do this? And Jesus says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. They were upset because they were pretending that the perfume could have been sold to give money to the poor. And Jesus says, the poor will always be with you. You always have them. You can always help them whenever you want but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Then he says this, truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of me. Do you know why Jesus said that? Because he expected that when we tell the gospel, we tell his life story. That's why he said that. And what happened to him? I think the cross and the Good Friday message is part of the gospel. I don't think it's the whole gospel. Our salvation is obviously inherent in the gospel story. But at the center of the gospel is the person of Jesus Christ and his glory. Obviously, we're meant to be sharing our testimonies. Obviously, we're meant to be telling people about what God has done for us. But our testimony is not the gospel. How we got saved is not the gospel. That we can be saved is good news, but it fits into 
the bigger picture and the broader picture of what Paul and the early church believed to be the gospel, and that's this. Jesus is king, and he has come, and he has ushered in his kingdom. God has made good on his promise, and because of that, you can be saved. Do you see the difference? And what we've done is we've focused on you can just be saved, and we preach Jesus as Savior, but we omit that he is Lord and King, that he is the anointed one. Dallas Willard said this, a famous theologian said this, most Christians today, or for most Christians, the gospel is all about getting my sin forgiven so that I can go to heaven when I die. In other words, it's become the gospel of sin management. That's what he says. However, the gospel is the whole story of Jesus, that he was and is the promised Messiah, that he came, that he lived and fulfilled Old Testament prophecy, that he was crucified, resurrected, glorified, and he's coming again. That story is anointed to convict people and bring them to a place where they confess Jesus Christ as Lord. I'm just going to read one more passage of Scripture here on this point. Not just Paul. I want to move away from Paul. Let's just look at what Peter did. Peter, in in chapter 2 of Acts, is gospeling. He's preaching the gospel to some Jewish people who were confused about what was happening at Pentecost because people looked like they were drunk. He stands up and he starts preaching and he shares the gospel. And look at what he thinks is the gospel. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of of Nazareth was a man. The humanity of Jesus. That he lived, that he was born, that he was here. Peter starts there. Accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. In other words, he fulfilled Old Testament prophecy, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. This is rooted in the Old Testament. God knew this was going to happen and promised it would happen. It's not new news. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death, the death of Jesus, nailed him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, the resurrection of Jesus freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep a hold of him. God has raised Jesus to life, the resurrection of Jesus, and we are all witnesses of it. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. There's the exaltation of Jesus. Peter launches into a full preaching of the gospel, which is the story of Jesus and how he fulfills Old Testament prophecy. And then look at what happens. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? I think part of how we evangelize should be to preach the whole counsel of Scripture according to as it relates to Jesus. I think when when we share Jesus with people, it needs to be that we share him in such a way that they understand that he is both Lord, Son, and Messiah. That story is anointed to bring people to a place where they accept Jesus. We don't have to add to it or take away from it. Some people, some theologians have tried to make the gospel, they, they, refer, to this, they refer to it as the irreducible minimum. They go, how can we summarize the gospel as much as possible? And some of them have said that the irreducible minimum gospel is salvation by grace through faith. They've said that's the gospel. And it totally omits the history and the story and the context, and for some people, that's difficult to grasp and to get hold of. It just seems abstract. And who would want to reduce the gospel anyway? So 
who disconnected the story of Jesus and the work of Jesus from the history of God's people and the buildup of the Old Testament. And what ends up happening is Jesus isn't honored. People don't surrender to Jesus. The concept of surrender and obedience to Jesus is weird because we've just said all you have to do is believe that he died for you and you'll be saved. And Paul moves, this is the last point, and I'll be quick on this one. He moves to the demand of the gospel. And this is the very thing that he ends with in verse 5. He says, you can't just understand or, 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 or accept the gospel as coming from God, as being rooted in the Old Testament, and knowing that Jesus is the center, and, and say that you've accepted it and not be obedient to Jesus. He says, through him we've received grace and apostleship to call the Gentiles to the obedience that comes through faith. For Paul, part of the gospel, part of what it means to have received the true gospel means that you understand that Jesus is not only the Son of God, the, the promised Messiah who's come and fulfilled Scripture, but that he is also Lord and King. In other words, true saving faith produces in us an obedience to God, an obedience to Jesus. If there's no obedience, there's no faith. It's just talk. It's just raising your hand, signing a card, walking down the aisle, and perhaps getting wet in the baptismal. Preaching and teaching of the gospel cannot omit the lordship of Jesus. If you've come to a saving faith through the preaching of the gospel, and the preaching of the gospel omitted the lordship of Jesus and surrendered to him, you've received a fake gospel, and you were preached a fake gospel. Because at the center of the gospel is Jesus. And inherent in the gospel is our salvation. And inherent in the gospel is that you submit to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Paul says this is the very thing God required him to do, to call the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. David Platt said this, speaking about contemporary Christianity and this issue that people are not submitted to Jesus. And the whole idea that we need to start preaching the full gospel again and the full counsel of scripture and unpack for people what the gospel means by telling the story of Jesus, the whole story of Jesus. He says this, suddenly when we realize this is what we need to be doing and this is what the early church did, contemporary Christianity sales pitches don't seem adequate anymore. Ask Jesus to come into your heart, invite Jesus to come into your life, pray this prayer, sign this card, walk down this aisle and accept Jesus as your personal savior. We've taken the infinitely glorious son of God who endured the infinitely terrible wrath of God and who now reigns as the infinitely worthy Lord of all and we've reduced him to a poor, puny savior who is just begging for us to accept him. Accept him. Do you really think Jesus needs our acceptance? Do we, don't we need him? Jesus is no longer one to be accepted or invited in but one who is infinitely worthy of our immediate and total surrender. The letter from Paul to the Romans in the end was accepted and embraced by the Romans and has become what it is today in the scriptures because Paul unpacks the gospel. Saying that it's from God, acknowledging that it's from God, rooting it in the story of Israel in the Old Testament, showing how Jesus fulfills those, promise, those prophecies and those promises, celebrating the fact that he is the one Messiah who's come, who's died and been resurrected and is coming again. And that in that story, there's salvation for us. And the purpose of the gospel is that Christ would be known, 
that Jesus would be embraced, that Jesus would be worshipped, that Jesus would be honored, that Jesus would be obeyed, and that Jesus would be followed. We are because of Jesus and his glory. That's at the center of the gospel. And I think when we get that, it repositions us where we need to be repositioned and at the feet of Jesus on our knees going, God, you are infinitely worthy. Take my life and you have everything. I'll surrender to you. You are Lord, you are Son, you are Messiah, you are my King. That's at the core of the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, I just want to thank you for your word. God, I want to thank you that your word is truth and that we can elevate and lift Jesus up. And when we do that, you draw men and women unto you. And I pray, God, as your church, those of us who have a heart for you, ignite a fire in us and a zeal for us for the gospel of God, for the preaching and the teaching and the telling of the story of Jesus from beginning to end. And God, when we speak and we preach the gospel, may Jesus always be at the center. And I pray for people tonight who perhaps don't know Jesus. I just want to say tonight, Jesus says because of this gospel message, you are able to come to him, every single one of you that is weary and laden and heavy burdened. And Jesus says he will give you rest. Jesus says that you can take his yoke upon you and you can learn from him because he's gentle and humble in heart. Jesus promises that you can find rest for your soul. Jesus says if anyone is thirsty, you can come to him and he will give you something to drink. And from the innermost being of who you are, you will fill up and well over with rivers of living water. That's the promise of Jesus because of the gospel. So tonight, Father, I pray that if anybody is here tonight who needs to know you, they would come to know you. As we end off tonight, we're going to give you some space to take communion. The worship team are going to lead us in a song and we celebrate what Jesus did on the cross because it's part of the gospel. His body was broken and his blood was shed. And we're going to give you the freedom to be able to move and to take the elements and to dwell on this and to think about this and to think about the gospel and its impact on your life and what Jesus did and celebrate that together. The night he was betrayed, Jesus was having a meal with his disciples in the upper room and he broke bread and he took a cup and he said, when you do this, do this often and remember then by breaking the bread, this is my body broken for you. And when you take the cup and you drink, remember that this is my blood shed for you. This is part of the good news. It's all about me. And you get to benefit and be blessed by it. So celebrate it and tell people about it. Tell people about me. So we're going to do that tonight. We're going to have communion together and you can go in your own time. The team are going to sing and then we're going to end off with a song. If you want prayer for anything tonight, I really feel God is challenging people to consider handing their life over to Him and going, God, I surrender to you. You are the Son, the Messiah. You're the King. You're my Lord. And I'd happily and willingly pray for people in that regard. So we're going to hand over to the team and so you can remind people to take communion.